Hello, I'm Sam Breakgear and welcome to Brains Bite Back. This is your podcast for all the juicy bits of psychology, technology and our society. As economies around the world suffer from the impact of the coronavirus, it can be hard to know where to put your money without its value dropping like the stock market in recent weeks. Some might speculate in Bitcoin or other investments, but nothing seems safe from the impact of COVID-19. My guest joining me to discuss the situation during these challenging times is a veteran in global capital markets and international estate planning with over 25 years of experience under his belt. He is the co-founder and managing principal of Door Asset Management, which helps clients around the world navigate global investment and regulatory trends. In addition to this, he is also the co-founder of Coro Global Inc., a publicly traded fintech company, David Door. And for our Neuron to Something feature, we have a piece from Scientific America which claims the loneliness of social distancing triggers brain cravings akin to hunger. This episode is brought to you by Publicize. Publicize is a digital PR company that stands out from other legacy agencies. They don't charge large retainers or simply send out press releases when you have something to announce. Instead, they have a transparent and modular approach to PR that ensures you only pay for what you need. They refer to this approach as growth communications for everyone, and it makes them the default option for tech startups looking to take their first steps in PR. If you want more information, you can request a free PR assessment at publicize.co and find a tailored PR strategy that works for you. And exclusively for Brainspike Back listeners, for a limited time only, those who sign up for a 12-month package will receive one month free. To claim this promotion, visit publicize.co slash BBB. Disclosure, this episode includes a client of an Espacio portfolio company. So, um, yeah, how are you doing? You're in Colombia, are you? I am, yeah. So I have a, uh, I have a home and, a, uh, and an office and a staff here in, in Medellin, Colombia. So I, I spend about half the year here. Oh, wow, that's incredible. I, this is the first time I've ever had a virtual call for this podcast with someone that's in Medellin too. Uh, I'm also based here. Yeah, nice. that's surprising. Usually I have these calls with people all over the world. So it's quite interesting to, to have one with someone that's like literally in, in my city here. <laughs> Where are you from originally? Um, originally born in Columbia, Missouri. In Columbia, Columbia, Missouri. Yeah. It's like a town, or it's a city called Columbia, but it's in Missouri. Or that's right. Yeah, that's the that's the that's the irony. So uh, <laughs> living in living in Columbia, Columbia in South America, but from a from a town, um, a small city called uh, Columbia with a U. Um, yeah, in, uh, in Missouri, in the middle of the U.S. Yeah, that's, born and raised in the Midwest. <laughs> that's the same as my friend. She's from Columbia, Maryland. Yeah, she's yeah. the same thing. You have me confused. I was like, "Wait, are you saying there's a place in Colombia called Missouri?" <laughs> I just like completely scrambled my mind, merging Missouri with Colombia for a moment, and just trying to understand yeah. what that landscape would look like. Yeah, totally, totally different, totally different for sure. Well, let's get started. And if you can explain for our listeners who you are, what you do, and how you got into it all, that would be perfect. Sure. So, so my name is David Dora. I'm the co-founder of Coral Global Inc., which is a global money transmission company committed to democratizing access to financial transactions worldwide, and in particular, giving folks access to be able to use stable money, which for us, we believe that the most important stable money in the world is, is gold. So that's who I am. That's my company. Uh, my background is 25 years in, in capital markets and fintech, 
and pleasure to be with you here today. Excellent. Uh, pleasure's all mine. Um, would you be able to go into a little bit of detail of how the company actually works? It sounds like you've got some like good intentions and you've got some, like, uh, some smart stuff in play here. But for, for me, for a novice when it comes to this industry, I, I don't know how this works or what, what steps you take to, to democratize this in a better sense. Sure, sure. So that's an important question. So the, the biggest issue right now is that when you look around the world, there's a there's a technology leap that's taking place. And this was similar to what happened in the late 1990s when telecom infrastructure was being redone. So as an example, in the United States, we have landlines, right? And as cell, cell phone towers became ubiquitous and cell phones in people's hands became ubiquitous, you had a lot of people that opted to not even bother installing a landline and just have a cell phone instead. And in emerging markets uh, like India, for example, in the late 1990s, it was not uncommon to just see this infrastructure leapfrog. So there were so many parts of India that didn't have any landlines whatsoever, and then cell phone towers popped up. And so you got this very interesting phenomenon where you would see people that, you know, they may not even have, you know, shoes or in some places running water, but there might be a cell phone that the family shares. And so you have this infrastructure leapfrog. Well, <clears throat> the same thing is taking place right now in, in financial infrastructure. The United Nations talks about the unbanked or the underbanked, which is a worldwide phenomenon. So you have 1.8 billion people worldwide that have smartphones. So not just a regular cell phone, but actually a smartphone device and have absolutely zero access to bank accounts or brokerage accounts. So again, it's this kind of gap, and we got to fill in that gap. People have the technology, but they don't have the, the access that that technology can grant towards financial transactions. And so this is something that's been on our mind for a long time, nearly nearly a decade now. And there's two components of it. One is the just the, the technological access. And then the second is that even if you have that access, what is it really that you need access to? And the, the core piece for society is really having access to to stable money, something that's not being diluted by governments. You have tremendous money printing by all the central banks of the world, and they're, they're effectively devaluing the currency that we use, whether that's uh, the Colombian peso for you and me here in, in Colombia, the US dollar, the euro, and, and, and so on. And that's a big challenge to, to society. So Coro is the remedy to that, and that's why we spend so much time building it. Okay, so, so you decided to go with gold because obviously you mentioned that countries are printing are they they're being irresponsible in, in the amount of money, money they're printing is that correct yeah and it's even sometimes it never it, it never starts off with the, the intention of destroying the money supply it just it just happens on its own it's very very difficult for governments to keep their budgets in check and this is something that's happened since the beginning of civilization this is not a new phenomenon nor is it a new cycle but it's a much larger phenomenon now in a globalized world where debt levels are extremely high and so governments are printing money to service their debt and it makes us all poorer in the process and this is why when you look at bitcoin bitcoin was supposed to be kind of the antidote to this and was a, a very cool technological first draft I think it's been dramatically, dramatically overhyped. It was trying to basically replicate gold and do it in a modern format where you could just use technology to, to move it around. But for us, for 5,000 years, gold has played a role as currency and done an incredible, incredible job. So we think it's really more about not trying to create a new cryptocurrency, but more so taking you know modern technology 
and marrying that with the physicality of, of gold to give people peace of mind and, and stability and something that's real phys really physical that they can actually hold in their hands. Yeah, I was wondering that. I was going to say, like, it looks like you came to a crossroads and I was interested to know what made you pick gold over Bitcoin. But that's that's a, that's a fair rationale. But I think before we progress anymore, I would really love to get into something really basic here. What defines a store of values worth? Because I understand that traditionally, I think that the pound is like one of the Great British pound is one of the oldest currencies. And that's because it's called a pound because it was associated with uh, meant you had a pound of gold in the bank. And I think the US, they traditionally printed based on gold. I'm not an expert on this, but I know this is all stopped. And like you said, they're just printing. So how do currencies today have value? Like um, other stores of value, for example, like why does a dollar have value? Why does gold have value? Why does Bitcoin have value? Why do any of them have value in the first place? Wonderful, wonderful question, right? So we, in great analogy, <clears throat> looking at how the British pound worked, and it's it's not a coincidence, even the reference term pound, uh, the dollar, these were originally references to, to weight, something that you could was um, indisputable, right? So for example, a, a troy ounce of gold, one troy ounce 5,000 years ago is the same weight as one troy ounce today. That doesn't change. And that's why it was such a logical anchor to use gold or silver, something that didn't change its physicality. And that's one of the problems with uh, fiat currency. So when we look to the, the proper definition of what serves as good money, right? So let's start with what functions as good money and then we'll compare it to what's out there right now. Good money is something that can serve as a store of value, a unit of account and a medium of exchange. It must meet all three of those, those qualities. And if you don't have all three of those, then you're at some point going to have a problem with that currency. Now, anything can become a currency psychologically amongst society. And many things have coffee, beans, cow hoofs, corn, paper, you name it. But there's a reason that gold always ends up coming back to the top of that. And it's because of many of its, its qualities. So first of all, you can't print gold, right? So again, back to that physicality, it's infinitely indivisible. Right. So no matter how much you whether you uh, break it down to gold dust or you melt it together into kilobars, um, its properties on the periodic table are absolutely the same, no matter how much you break it down or lump it together. And because it's finite and it's rare, it makes us a great store of value. It doesn't go bad like coffee beans might. Right. So it's not like uh, fish or coffee beans or some other you know, physical commodity. You can put it on a shelf and it can sit there for for infinity and it's not going to fall apart or degrade or rust or anything else. So that's one of the reasons that it's worked so well and checked all those boxes as a store of value, unit of account and medium of exchange. Now, with paper currency right now, it's a little bit of a it's we've been tricked. That's that's really the best way to describe it. Paper currency up until 1971 was backed by gold. That was what gave people the confidence. And so we should talk about why paper came about. So paper money was actually, it was just a technological solution, just like we're using distributed ledger type stuff today. It was a former technological solution to dealing with moving gold around, right? You don't want to carry a kilobar of gold in your backpack to do transactions all day. It would be much simpler to put that in a vault, have a secure piece of paper paper that says, hey, I own one kilobar, and then you can exchange that paper to somebody else. And when you transfer that paper, they have a claim on that gold. They could go to the vault and pull it out. So it's just a technological solution there, right? And today's technology is DLT. But what happened, what happened over time was that 
people found that, wait a minute, there's actually more of these pieces of paper floating around than what's in the vault. It's very dishonest and, and I would submit to you actually quite criminal. And, and so that started to erode away. And next thing you knew, governments had to basically, by fiat decree, say, this is, this paper is money. This is what you have to use. You have to settle your debts, you know, with dollars. You have to pay your taxes with dollars. You have to do commerce with dollars and, and so on. And in 1971, we went off the gold standard in the United States. Nixon took us off of it. And the reason we went off of it was because France, as a country, said, hey, you know, we're a little insecure about the amount of dollars floating around. We're a little suspicious about it. We think we'd like to exchange our dollars and, and have our gold. And the United States said, no, nope, sorry, we're not going to give it to you. And that's when the world went off the, the gold standard. So that's not that far in our past. You know, we're not talking about hundreds of years ago or even thousands of years ago. That was just in the 1970s. And when you trace that forward and you look at the devaluation of the dollar versus gold, if you look at how much an ounce of gold was in dollar terms then versus now, we've lost 97, 98% of the purchasing power of the US dollar, 99% of the purchasing power of the euro and the pound and the yen. So this is just, this is horrible. This is, that's not good for society. Yeah. I never knew about that with France and the US. That's a fun little history lesson there. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so how does, you, how does your business work in the sense of, like you said, uh, you can't like lug around gold. So I'm sure you're not going around giving everyone little bits of gold. And have you got some kind of big, huge, like James Bond villain style size safe with gold somewhere? Or like, how, <laughs> how does it work? To me, I'm like a complete novice when it comes to any of this. So you have to explain it to me like I'm five years old. <laughs> no, no problem. No problem. So let's kind of talk about the technological progression and then how we match that up with our, our, our James Bond vaults and, <laughs> and how it works. So, so, so the, the progression, right, is that from paper money is, a, and again, I always think it's a good starting point to think of paper as a technology, right? That mm -hmm. was a solution, an original solution to gold. The next step was what we know today is our modern banking system. And, you know, you've got electronic deposits and some cool features and there's some great, you know, apps that are starting to come out. That's today's modern banking system, the SWIFT network, as an example. If you need to send an international wire, it's going to go through a bank and a couple banks and it goes through SWIFT's uh, system. So those are the what we'll call the current banking rails. And that's how I like to think of it. Think of it like train tracks. Those are the rails that the current system uh, rides on. So we went from paper most stuff really is digital these days. You know, most people don't really carry that much cash in their pocket. So we're already in this phase where most money has been digitized. Okay. Mm -hmm. And th those rails are approximately 37 years old. The average uh, age of, of banking software worldwide is about 37 years, which is pretty crazy. So it's, yeah. it's, it's also very, it's, it's also extremely out of date technology. Like the phone that you you have in, in your house, your mobile phone, I'm sure is probably not more than 24 months old. Right. Yeah. Most people have got a phone that's within two years. So to think that we're making financial transactions digitally on systems that are 37 years old is, is insane. So now that brings us that brings us forward to what happened in, in 2008, 2009, which was when Bitcoin came out and, and Bitcoin basically introduced this concept of distributed ledgers. And I think it's helpful probably for your audience to hear how we view distributed ledgers and to, to simplify it yeah. because there's there's a lot of hype around it and there's there's tremendous misunderstanding with how the ledgers work and also then how money would work um, in relationship to a ledger yeah. so when when bitcoin came out we got excited because like lots of people did we looked at it right away and we said oh this is very cool 
this has the potential to be the most modern rails, right? So we'll think in terms of rails. So it's kind of going from old train tracks to like a, a magnetic uh, levitating high-speed train, right? That's that's where the future is, is is heading for new financial rails. But when we looked at at Bitcoin, we saw that there was it was a good first draft, as I mentioned earlier. It had some flaws. It had some scalability issues, some security issues, the energy consumption issues. So we looked at that, and instead of saying, "Hey, we want to invest our time and energy in Bitcoin," we said, "No, we're going to wait." And we'll wait as long as it takes until these uh, technological iterations improve and we actually get to a ledger that's functional. Now, why are ledgers so interesting, right? So distributed ledgers in a nutshell, uh, the way I like to explain to, to people in basic terms is just think about it like the cloud, but on steroids, right? So we've all benefited by cloud technology, right? If you drop your phone in the street or somebody takes it from you, no big deal. You're not going to lose all the valuable photos of your family and loved ones and valuable client data. You just go get a new phone. It's sync up, whether, you know, it's Apple servers, Amazons or Googles. You know, you're going to sync up in the cloud or Dropbox and all your life is back to normal. Right. And everything There's pretty much not a business these days nor an individual in today's modern world that's not running and grateful for having cloud services running in the background. But nonetheless, those cloud data centers are big, giant data clusters. Right. So if somebody were to shoot a missile at one of these data centers, it would it would be not necessarily catastrophic because they have backup at other data centers, but it's very concentrated. And the beauty of distributed ledgers is that you could scatter that you could multiply instead of having to have all these you know, gigantic data clusters, you could spread that into a thousand million pieces. You could have it, you know, somebody's server in their home could help support the network. And so you have this just very much like nature, you have this tremendous resiliency from that. And that's, that is a legitimate aspect of distributed ledger and the evolution of blockchain that is absolutely worthy. And people being hyped up about how that can benefit society is fantastic. Whether or not distributed ledgers are going to save puppies and cure cancer is ridiculous. Everybody just, you know, started to treat it like, oh, okay, a ledger. Is gonna, it's great for everything. That's not really true. It's just an, it's, it's a glorified Excel sheet that's you know, spread out in a million pieces. And you can do cool things with that, but that's, that's really the, the basics. So now you have these new, new rails coming in. And with that, um, as the technology evolved, it got more secure. It got way, way, way faster. And it also did something that's very important for your audience to under, understand is that as distributed ledgers advanced, you know, from a couple iterations of blockchain and then ultimately into directed acyclic graph, which is what we mm-hmm. use, it broke free from the necessity to have a token as a requirement to operate it. And this is very, very, very important for everybody to hear. So Bitcoin is actually two technologies that are glued together. There's Bitcoin with a mm-hmm. big B, which represents the distributed ledger. That's the blockchain. And then there's Bitcoin with a little b, which is the token. So when we hear about the price of Bitcoin, it's everybody referring to that Mm -hmm. token. Now, here's what's important to understand. If you want to use the ledger and record any transaction on this great immutable distributed ledger, you must use a token. And if you want to use the token to send to somebody, you must use the ledger. They are like a conjoined twin. They are inseparable. You have to have them together. That's the original architecture. And the reason it was architected that way is because that was just the first draft. They didn't know any other way to do it. It was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant uh, development in technology, but from a money perspective. So here's where we're going to switch from the technology to the money. It was not so intelligent. 
Okay. And I'm going to give you examples of why. Mm-hmm. Let's say that you're FedEx, right? And you like the idea of being able to use a ledger to track your packages. That's a great commercial use case. Perfect example of using ledgers. But you don't want a token interfering with that. You don't care what the price of Bitcoin is. That's a distraction for you. You just want to be able to record your packages. So that's an example where you just want to use the ledger. Now, let me give you another example where we get into the money side. Imagine that you go to your ATM and you want to pull out $200. But because of the fluctuation of the ATM's network during that period, it actually spits out $140 or $370. You would find that completely, utterly dysfunctional for your day-to-day life. You never would want the network to affect the value of your money. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what all these early stage cryptocurrencies suffered from amongst many other things. So that's dysfunctional. That does not work as money. And that's why we, it's very easy for us from early on to say, no, that's, that's, that's not going to work. There'll be a lot of people, a lot of people got rich and speculated on it, but we're not in the business of of speculating like that. We're really interested in the, the longer term fundamentals. So in 2000, approximately 2016, 17, around that period, IBM and uh, the Linux Foundation came out with a new blockchain that was called Hyperledger. And Hyperledger was the first blockchain to not necessitate a token to operate it. So this was a huge breakthrough. Because if you think about it, the token's just an interference. If you have the ledger and it's pure and it works, then whether you want to create a, a digital money or record gold on there or a package or dollars or new cryptocurrency, it doesn't matter. You can record it on the ledger, but you don't need a token to drive and operate the ledger. So this was a huge technological breakthrough. And that's when we actually got excited and said, wow, okay, now the new rails for the financial system, they are, they're coming up, they're now on the horizon. And shortly thereafter, there was a gentleman named Dr. Lehman Baird, who's a career computer scientist, and he had a absolute mathematical breakthrough, very equivalent to Einstein's E equals MC squared. And he came up with this mathematical algorithm, which he calls the Hashgraph consensus algorithm, which was just an, a mind-blowing breakthrough and advanced you know, distributed ledger forward by like 100x. And so that's the technology that we use. And to put it in perspective, Bitcoin does about, you know, three to seven transactions per second. Our systems can process 500,000 transactions per second. Requires zero mining, 100% secure, and is a big advancement. So these are the new rails that are coming to the, to the financial system. That's awesome. I said, explain it to me like a five-year-old and genuinely, I think if I was five years old, I'd still be up with you. <laughs> uh, especially the ATM. Cool. I love that explanation. That, that really brought it to light to me. And I now... I completely understand, uh, yeah, what you're what you're doing and where you're going because I'm a big fan of Bitcoin. And I've got a bit myself, but um, it's more just out of curiosity and uh, interest. But now, mm-hmm. like you explaining this, it 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 makes sense, uh, and I understand your vision and your goal a lot more. Definitely, that's awesome. Um, aside from this, so on a slightly separate note, mm-hmm. with what's going on in the world at the moment. How do you think that the the coronavirus will have an impact on the world economy over the next year or so, in in your opinion? So I've got some very clear views on this. Our background, and I say ours, meaning my brother and I, our career investment background is in a very specific uh, discipline of investments, which is called global macro. And global macro really is a top-down view of the world. It looks at the interconnectedness. It looks at the policies that are out there. It looks at how money functions and if if or if not, it is functioning. So we're very, very, very clear on the impact of the pandemic. 
the the first thing to understand is that we were coming to the end of a of a hundred year cycle in just credit bubbles. So if if you look at the debt that's accumulated in the global system since the last financial crisis of 0809. McKinsey did a study about three years ago, the global consulting firm. And at the end of the last financial crisis, the agreement amongst global governments at the G, first G20 meeting coming out of that financial crisis was to, to reduce overall global debt. It was a world saturated with debt, which is unstable for the financial system. Well, McKinsey did a study three years ago to see whether or not they were successful with reducing the debt levels. And lo and behold, what a surprise, not only were they not successful in reducing them, they didn't even keep it flat, they increased. And as of three years ago, that that number was about 57 trillion in additional debt globally. Now, digest that for a second. I know that the listeners, you know, we hear numbers like trillions of dollars thrown around, but I want everybody to just pause and really think about that word trillion. That is an, literally an astronomical number. It is mathematically yeah. impossible to repay. There's no way to repay it. It's not going to happen. And that was three years ago. And even pre-pandemic, we were already crossing around 62, 63 trillion. And then post-pandemic, that's going to just absolutely launch us probably at a 74, 75 trillion. So the, the pandemic from an economic impact is it's an accelerant to exposing what was already uh, a tipping point for global economies. So if you go back to fourth quarter of 2018, you, you can see there was a huge sell-off. People were blaming it on the, you know, the trade war between the United States and China, but the underlying business fundamentals had been deteriorating. They've been deteriorating for the last couple of years. The, the debt saturation can't keep up with you know, a company's ability to service that debt. So the leverage is at absolutely epic historic highs. It's never been this high in, in all of human history. Mm. So what the, what the pandemic's doing is it's just exposing that really fast in, in real time and putting additional financial pressure. So it, it's, it's a pretty ugly situation. It's not good. It's dire mm. and it's going to get a lot worse. And, you know, there might be a little bit of hope as, you know, all these curves for the, uh, the virus flatten and people, you know, get excited and maybe see a uh, bounce in the market, but you're going to get one of two things going to happen. Either one, stuff's going to keep deteriorating, which it's that's inevitable, whether that happens at the end of this year or going into next year. Or two, you get such a runaway inflation that comes out. Stock markets might rise really, really rapid, but also the price of food rises very quickly. And that's inflation. And that's when you're coming to the end stage of, of a currency collapse. And, and we're very close to that. Oh, damn. Some scary stuff. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah, it's heavy. Yeah. Um, go, and then going back onto your, your specialist topic, what would this mean for the dollar? Would Because I'm still surprised, like, uh, in my my currency, obviously, is, is the pound, but I live in Colombia, and I've seen both currencies um, just weaken so much against the dollar. Even in the UK, I've seen that happen. And um, I just was yes. so surprised that I suppose the dollar is... Uh, it's no surprise that it is powerful, but it's that powerful, like, when the US does badly or poorly economically that it has such a greater impact on other countries. Like how, how do you expect the dollar to, to change as a result of this? Yeah, this is, this is an interesting phenomenon that it's counterintuitive because it doesn't seem to make sense. You hear about the United States printing dollars and how could gold be falling against the dollar? Why is everything falling against the dollar? But 
I'm going to explain to you the mechanics behind the scenes and it's going to make perfect sense to you. So awesome. the, the first thing, the first thing to understand is that because the dollar is the most widely used currency in the world, it is the most popular currency for others to borrow money in. Okay. And so the Colombian government, let's use an example right here where we both live, right? Last year, the Colombian government borrowed one and a half billion dollars by a treasury issuance. So they issued international bonds priced in dollars. They borrowed that because the interest rate internationally to borrow in dollars was four and a half percent. Had they borrowed in Colombian pesos, it would have cost them 7%. So they were attracted by that, that cheaper interest payment and it would lower their cost of, of financing their debt, right? Mm -hmm. But here's the problem with that. And the problem with that is that you're implicitly taking on the exchange rate risk. So you might have a, uh, it might be cheaper to borrow in dollars, but if the dollar goes up versus the Colombian peso, then you then have to factor in the exchange rate change into servicing your debt, right? Mm. Pretty basic, pretty, pretty basic stuff, right? Now, <clears throat> what you have to do is you have to look at whether or not many people have done that and what that cycle looks like. So in, in 2008, 2009, the Federal Reserve lowered interest rates down to 25 basis points and left them there for 10 years. So not only did that make the dollar, you know, the dollar's always been a popular currency for international reserves, for international commodities and the payment of goods, but what it did was it, it, it put gasoline on the fire for people wanting to borrow in dollars because they were so crazy cheap. For the last 10 years, countries like China, Brazil, Mexico, Colombia, you name it, the whole world has borrowed heavily, 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 heavily in dollars. And so when you start to get a financial crisis and those payments start to come due, the defaults start to occur. And when you mm -hmm. get a default on the debt, it creates a vicious feedback loop that just drives the do dollar higher. And each time the dollar goes higher, it spins other debt out of control that breaks apart and can't be repaid. And so then the dollar goes up, 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 and up. So as an example, we think that using the Colombian peso as an example, I think that before this is all said and done, you'll see the Colombian peso at probably 5,500 to the dollar, which is a big move, especially from where it is uh, right now. And yeah. so you're going to get this gigantic rally in the dollar when, when markets continue accelerating to the downside, you get this massive, massive liftoff, not because it's good. It's not because it's a good currency. It's because, because of that debt repayment cycle. But then you have another factor that drives it up too, okay? The other factor is that when markets sell positions, so when all the pension funds and investors or any investor, anybody that's selling their stock of Apple or Microsoft or Google or any stock in the U.S., when they sell those stocks because they're nervous because the stock prices are falling, well, what happens? They sell that stock and what's put in their account? The dollars. Mm. So when markets fall, the clearing currency is dollars predominantly worldwide. So that's the other factor is that all of a sudden there's all this conversion from stocks digitally into dollars digitally, and it puts this a massive demand pressure. And now when you combine those two things together, it's just crazy. It's just an absolute blast off with a dollar. And that's why. And so you see this in 2008, 2009, even you know, when we went into that crisis, the price of gold fell. Not because gold's not good. It's amazing. It doesn't change. One ounce is one ounce, right? But the amount of dollars to buy one ounce changed dramatically and it mm. fell. And then on the other side of that, when the government started printing to try and reinflate the system, gold took off like a rocket.
And that's what will happen this time, except the dynamics are a little bit different because the chances that governments can actually print enough to reinflate without actually losing all confidence in their currency is, is a game changer this time. They're gonna, it's gonna be a lot harder for them to convince society that they're not ruining the value because the price of food and other important goods are, are gonna go up. So this is that moment where a paper currency falls apart. So you think that gold will have a better future than it has in previous uh, crises? For sure, for sure. Interesting. Um, out of curiosity, what do you think for Bitcoin? Do you think, because uh, one of the things is um, I see all the time on, on Reddit when I do venture into the Bitcoin subreddit, they're always going on about how when the dollar fails or when there's going to be an economic crisis or anything like this, that they've been waiting for something exactly like this. They're going to be like, we'll, we'll be the ones laughing, these Bitcoin enthusiasts. And to be honest, it doesn't really seem like, if anything, the price has gone down. Or it hasn't shot up or it hasn't, it seems to have followed the dollar. So it doesn't seem to be that immune. But I have friends and other people that speculate that it's going to do well. I honestly don't have a clue. I mean, what is your, uh, what's your guess on Bitcoin for the future as a result of what's going on right now? I think that I think that Bitcoin's best future, where it could retain some value, is to to view Bitcoin much more like a collectible. Bitcoin is not money, and and the reason for it is just the technological flaws make it just dysfunctional as money. You know, the transaction settlement time, and and we can see this. This isn't. This is an opinion I've had for a long time, but now the data, you know, 10 years later is, has, has backed up that, that original thesis. If you look at the, the vast majority of, of Bitcoin transactions, the, the irony of it all is that they take place off chain. So if you think about that for a moment, just technologically, that's, that's ludicrous. That's no good. That doesn't work really well. That's not a good ledger. So again, it was it was it was a brilliant idea. I think that people will continue to to buy it with you know curiosity, and um, it could retain value, like I said, like a collectible, like beanie beanie babies, you know, and many other baseball cards and other uh, other other stuff. It's a it's a fascinating technological uh, creation. It's like having the first plane, right? You know, if you have one of those bi wing planes or what the Wright brothers, you know, flew. Very yeah. cool. It'd be worth a, it would be worth plenty of money and cool to put in a museum, but whether or not you'll be able to transact with it, no way. I, mm -hmm. I call total BS on it. it. It doesn't have any any future like that. And and then you also have too is that one of the other things you know in our career background, um, we've spent a lot of time you know servicing you know institutions and doing a lot of you know forensic an analytics on on fraud and and theft and the the fraud and, and the manipulation. You know, if you look at the data, if you look at the manipulation of Bitcoin prices, it's horrible. It's it's really screwed up. You know, yeah. it's not fair to the people that really believe in the, like yourself, you believe in the spirit of Bitcoin, right? And mm -hmm. and, and I think its spirit is its biggest value add. It was really trying to address um, what we're addressing now. It was saying, hey, listen, there needs to be something that's independent from governments that people can't mess with. It's immutable. It allows people to trust each other when they don't, you know, trust each other. How can you do that through a, a network? Brilliant. Super cool. Super cool. The spirit of it lives on. What I think is really important for everybody that's a big fan of, of Bitcoin and what I would encourage them to think about is that it's not productive to think about Bitcoin religiously. And mm. when I've gotten into conversations and been at the crypto conferences, people are just, they're religious over it. Like if, if you and I have two different, you know, cell phones, right? And you're like, hey, David, my cell phone's faster. The camera's better. The data storage is better. 
like we wouldn't debate it. We just pull up the specs on the internet and one of us would be right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Be, there's not really anything to argue about. Like if we were arguing about like the best TV coming out next year with all other technology stuff, these things aren't really argued about. But what's bizarre to me is that people are arguing just religiously over Bitcoin from technology that's it's 10 years old. That tech is very, very old tech at this point. And, and it didn't work really good at the beginning and it works, it works even poorer today. So if we were to set aside that, you know, that religious fervor and just say, okay, well, cool. The spirit lives on. How do we transfer that forward and carry that? Then, then I think you have something much more valuable. Awesome. Yeah. I definitely hope it's spirit lives on. I, I get the intention is similar to like what you're saying. The intention there is pure. Uh, let's just hope that that kind of arrogance or head in the sand of this is the only answer. This is the, this is it. This is it. I won't listen to anything you say. Hopefully that stays or dies with uh, Bitcoin while the rest of the tech moves on. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. it's good for people to keep innovating. You know, there's a ton of cryptocurrencies and people making new blockchains. I mean, I think that I think the, the competition and the open dialogue is a great thing. You know, we're yeah. not saying that we're the end all be all with what we've created. We think that it's it's pretty profound, but I think other people should be building profound stuff too. And they are right. And and I think that's, that's what we need. You know, you need to see, you know, kind of a thousand flowers blossom and, um, and give people the, the choices. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. I do have one last question, which I'd love to put to you. I think I already know the answer, but I'd still like to hear it anyway. Is it even possible for everyday folk, your average doe to have an impact on a large scale on <laughs> On like, or to have any kind of influence on the economy. I I know that sounds sounds stupid. Maybe not as individually, but if is there certain things you can do? Like, it feels almost like we're in a sea and a storm's come and we're just being thrashed around and there's nothing we can do but just just cling on to like our our lifeboat or our, our um flotation jackets. Is there anything like how can we prepare ourselves? How can we perhaps make a positive difference? How how can we make some sort of or have some sort of impact in what seems like a world where we are just ants? <laughs> so many of us are just ants being swept up in a, a financial storm right now. It's a beautiful question and, and really important too. You know, these are tumultuous times. As you probably suspected, yes, of course, I believe that an individual can make a world of difference. And when we come under stress, you know, we have a pandemic and a financial crisis that are coming at the same time, which that's pretty wild. You know, I don't think anybody had predicted that those two pieces would, you know, converge simultaneously. And that's going to make people feel even more uh, helpless. So the, the solution is as follows, as, as it relates to, you know, financial decision making. A lot of things when stress comes, you know, your community becomes really important. And the best thing that individuals can do is learn very, very basic economic principles. And these are some of the things we're going to put out some free videos soon that, that help that are cool. designed for anybody to, to see. I mean, like three or four videos, simple stuff, five minutes each with just some basic building blocks of what money is, how it works, how it works throughout time. And, and for people to be able to share that education with their community is going to allow resiliency amongst the community and rebuilding and rebuilding ahead of time and without feeling dependent on, you know, a government, for example, you know, being the solution provider or a government having to print checks and, you know, subsidize everybody because that's not the long-term solution. Re rebuilding and allowing people to grow again is. But I, I'm, I'm a big believer that very basic education doesn't have to be advanced. Very basic education is really the most empowering uh, key. 
Awesome. And those videos will um when when will they be coming out? I think it'll probably be realistically, we're probably a good two, three months out. We're we're prepping for our, our product launch in the United States here in the next 60 days. Um, so once we roll that out and that's uh, launches in the United States, once we've got that up and running um, and everything's going smooth there, we'll then turn to, to adding in some of the educational videos that will help people understand these things. Cool. Awesome. Well, I look forward to seeing how that goes and, and keep me posted. I'd be interested in checking them out. That's everything from, from my end. I got to say you have taken a very complex subject, which looked like a real mess to me and you really simplified it. So I definitely think the five-year-old in me understands now. <laughs> well, super. That's 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 because it's the five-year-old in me talking to you. I always had a hard time lear learning as a kid. And so, you know, I had to break down complex blocks into really simple stuff and then repeat them uh, a, a bunch. So I, I appreciate you saying that. And that's, that's, that's right back at you. It's because I, I have that same view myself. Awesome. Cheers, man. I, um, if we want to follow you and keep up with what you're up to, what's the best way to do that? Is there a social media or any website you want to send them to? Yeah, sure. So we have for uh, for Coro, the website is coro.global. So just www.coro.global. We'll pull up the site. You can subscribe there to uh, to our alerts and be informed of when we're coming to, to your country or state. And then for anybody that's interested in some of the more nerdy stuff um, that I talk about in financial markets, I'm on Twitter at David Dorr, D-A-V-I-D-D-O-R-R. Uh, is my Twitter handle um, and happy to share stuff uh, from there. Awesome. David, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Sam. Appreciate your time. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Publicize. If you want to find out more about their PR packages, the free resources they have available or receive a free PR assessment, you can visit their website and for a limited time only, Brains Bite Back listeners will receive one month free with a 12-month package at publicize.co slash bbb. You run to something. According to Scientific America, psychologists theorize loneliness hurts with such intensity because, like hunger and thirst, loneliness acts as a biological alarm bell. The aching of it drives us to seek out social connection just as hunger pangs urge us to eat. While the idea makes sense, it has long proved difficult to test this in humans. However, on March 26th, just as the world was hit by the social distancing of COVID-19, researchers from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology posted a preliminary report. It is the first study in humans to show that both loneliness and hunger share signals deep in a part of the brain that governs very basic impulses for reward and motivation. The findings point to one simple conclusion. Our need to connect is as fundamental as our need to eat. It's ironic that we can have food delivered to our homes by a person, but we can't have their company. that's it for our show this week i hope you're okay i hope you're staying safe and i hope you're healthy if you want to listen to more episodes while you're stuck indoors you can find all our episodes at sociable.co you can also find some great articles there and you can subscribe to our newsletter to constantly stay up to date with what we're doing here at the sociable in addition to that you can also follow us on itunes youtube spotify overcast basically anywhere you find your podcast you will find us so have a search and we love hearing from you. So feel free to leave comments wherever you find your podcast. And also you can reach out to us directly to let us know what you think of the show. If you have suggestions for any episodes that you want covered, or if you just want to tell us how we're doing, then we'd love to hear from you. So don't be shy. Until next time, take care of yourselves. Bye.